series today is, uh, this is our first installment in the Christ Culture Communion series. Last, last week we had an introduction to it. And uh, if you didn't listen to the introduction, I want to encourage you to go back and check it out because it'll really give a frame of reference as to what it is that we're doing here. I think it'll be a little more difficult to follow the series if you haven't heard that, so you can go online and listen to that. The uh, extreme cliff notes of what it is that we're focusing on is, is just this, that uh, we have sin that affects us all the time, and we struggle against sin all the time. But we struggle with sin on a surface level. Sin has pervaded our culture and, and pervaded in our world in such a deep way that much of the way that sin affects us, it affects us in ways that we often are not aware of. And so it's like when you're dealing with a, a deep, deep issue, health issue, thank you, um, when you're dealing with a deep health issue, um, you can't manage it with just uh, exercise and vitamins. You know, we, we have to deal with a deep health issue where uh, we need the help of doctors. And what we're trying to do in this series is identify the deep, pervasive sin issues in our culture, how they affect the way we think, and then bring them to God and ask him to help us out with them. Okay, and so um, given that, um, that's the cliff notes on what we did last, last week. Now, uh, given that, it's important for us to remember that guilt and conviction are not bad things. If we create a culture of guilt and shame where we're constantly loathing ourselves, that's not helpful because that's focused on me. Um, I, I get my focus here and I'm like, oh, I don't like who I am and everything. That's not a good, we're not trying to create a shame culture. That's just like any other world religion where we work really hard to try to be good and we get disappointed with ourselves all the time. That's not helpful. However, godly guilt and conviction in our lives are very important things. They're like the nerve endings in our fingers that give us pain when we touch something that's hot. And it reminds us, it says, you shouldn't be touching this. It's going to burn you. And conviction and guilt in our life should be the moment when God says, this isn't working. Like, hello, something needs to change, you know? And so as we walk into this series, since what we're trying to do is identify cultural iniquity and how it affects us, we should be looking for the conviction of God. That is not something that, that we're looking for in order to not like ourselves or because we think God is there, uh, a maniacal God judging us. What it is is that God wants us more fully to live in the abundant life in a deep relationship with him. And he's helping to identify the places where we're being deceived and living in ways apart from him. And so we invite God to judge us. Literally, that's the prayer. God, please judge me. Please discipline me. And what he says all the time is, if you judge yourself, then you wouldn't have to be judged. And so the invitation of God, expose me to the light. Allow me to see the places where I'm being led astray. Part of us, of course, is very scared of that. But God is a, a, a wonderful doctor who's trying to heal us. And he wants us to be restored. And so we're inviting the conviction of God, okay? And so uh, with that said, we're going into our first iniquity today, the first uh, the first iniquity that we're looking to identify, and that iniquity is greed. Okay, greed. Now, uh, the kingdom virtue that is on the other side of greed, the antithesis, the opposite, the inverse of greed, is generosity. So the kingdom virtue, the, the mindset that Jesus wants to cultivate in his kingdom is one of generosity. But where the enemy wants to twist us and where he wants to get us and where he wants to keep us from the abundant life is through a mindset of greed. Now, greed can take on a, a number of various forms, okay? It can go anywhere from stinginess, where we hold everything very tight, or it can go toward a place of materialism and consumerism, where I can never have enough, that insatious desire, there's a lust inside of me for more stuff, and I always need more stuff. Those are actually two different messages because they're two different iniquities. Even though they're all under the header of greed, they're two different mentalities, two different motivations. They affect us in two different ways. So what we're doing is we're actually going to split those. And we're going to, in a few weeks, we're going to talk about consumerism and materialism and how that affects us. And, uh, and, and I look forward to, to that 
uh, message as well. But today, what we're dealing with is the other side, the stinginess, okay? The holding tight and not being willing to release. And that, that comes out of two basic things. One is it comes out of fear that I'll never have enough. And since I think I'll never have enough, then I can't release. But secondly, it comes out of control. And control is the place where it's mine, and I want to hold on to it, and maybe there's pride in that as well. So, you see, greed can be pride and or fear that makes me hold on, or greed can be lust that wants more. The lust that wants more we'll deal with in a few weeks. This is the fear and the control that keeps me from flowing and being generous. Okay, so that's what we're dealing with today. If you... uh, Uh, have ever listened to a speaker from Compassion International or World Vision or those who deal with poverty on a on a systemic level they will they will reveal to us that one of the biggest problems when dealing with poverty is not just the lack of money if you take a bunch of money and give it to a person who's been involved in systemic poverty in their life they by and large won't know how to handle it well and it'll end up hurting them as much as it'll help them Because what happens is there's this thing that's referred to by those people all the time as a poverty spirit or a poverty mentality. And when we have a poverty spirit and when we think in a mentality of poverty, what ends up happening is this. And maybe some of you were raised in an environment where you had very, very little. And then if all of a sudden you hit the lottery, if all of a sudden the money is there, two things tend to happen when there's a mentality of poverty. The one thing that can happen is, wow, It's all here, I've never had it, and I might not have it again, so I'm going to get everything I ever wanted and just bam, 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 and i got to get all the money to all the people, or i got to use it for whatever, and it just goes, and there's no wisdom in it, you know? Or the other thing that happens is, is there's fear that I'll never get any more money again, so then I can't use it wisely and invest it or anything like that. I'm, I'm gripping it because it becomes a god to me. You know, and so that's a that's a poverty spirit where we can't think generously and with wisdom about how to use that. God deals with the Israelites on this level big, big, big time in the Old Testament. Big time. See, from the very beginning, God had a plan for Israel. And his plan was he took this man, Abraham. And he said to Abraham, I am going to bless you. I'm going to bless you abundantly. And I'm going to bless you generationally. And I'm going to create a whole culture from you, a whole nation from you. And the whole idea behind this culture is you will be my people and you will be a blessing to all the nations. You will abundantly bless the nations. My goodness, my abundance will flow through you and overflow and it will bless all the nations. And that's true for you, Abraham, and it's true for your son, Isaac, and it's true for your son, Jacob, and for all those who come after you who come in your line. Then something happens. In the next generation, they end up down in Egypt. And when they get down to Egypt... They become slaves. And they start to feel like orphans who don't have a father who cares, but they're isolated on their own. And they move from being the family of the patriarchs to becoming a race of people who are dominated by another race. And it seems like there will never be enough and there will never be reprieve. And it's in that environment that they learn through the school of hard knocks a spirit of poverty and a spirit of orphan, of not feeling like there's a dad who cares. And they become a race of people who have been isolated and who have been abandoned, it would appear to them. It would feel to them that they have been abandoned and they are mistreated. And in the midst of that, God sees them because they are still his family. And when he sees them, he redeems them and he saves them through the person of his his chosen servant Moses, who goes and he calls them up out of Egypt. And here's where the journey starts, where God wants to teach them again. They are not orphans. They are not just a race of people. They are a chosen nation, and they are the family of God, and they have a father who will always provide for them. And because of that, their mentality around their resources can be very, very different. 
than what they thought and what they had experienced in Egypt. So he starts them on a journey in the wilderness where he's going to show them that he is their provider. And so this is the, the journey from Egypt to the promised land is a much bigger journey than the miles walked. It's a mental, emotional, spiritual journey where they are learning to be a family who can trust their father. That's what they're learning. And so initially they go out into the middle of the wilderness and there's nothing to eat. So father sends bread from heaven. And they don't have anything to drink. And God pours out water from a rock. And they learn, again, through the school of hard knocks, this time, how to trust their dad. And how to lean into his character. And the fact that he's good. Of course, we know that they were having a hard time learning that lesson. It was a very difficult lesson for them to receive and to learn. In the process, they go to this mountain called Mount Sinai. When they get to Mount Sinai, what God does is he reaffirms his covenant with his people. He reestablishes the rules of the family and, and talks about his relationship with them. And he makes a promise to them. And the promise is that he's going to take them not only out of Egypt, but out of this wilderness. And he's going to bring them into a place called the promised land. And that promised land is going to be the land of what? Milk and honey, baby. You know, it's like, whoa! Can you imagine after being in the place for... 400 years or whatever where you have nothing and everything that you do have Pharaoh's taking from you and everything that's done in this kingdom is done off the sweat of our backs and we get none of the fruit of it. And what he says is, I'm going to put you in a land where you are reaping things that you have not sown. There, and they go and they spy out that land and you remember the grapes are so big it took two men to carry them, you know? That's the abundance of their father, and he promises them this land of abundance. But here's the thing, is that when they're in the wilderness, they have no choice but to trust God because there's nowhere else they can trust. And their hearts at times don't want to trust, but they have no other options, so they have to lean into them. They complain, they moan, they groan, whatever, but they also cry out. And when they do, God delivers. But a day is coming when they won't have to cry out when the abundance will be there because they come into the land of milk and honey. And the desperate need for Father won't be as strong. So what it is that he does in, that, in this moment when he's promising them that is he puts guidelines in place to remind them of when they come in the land of abundance, how will they remember that he is Father and it all comes from him. Right? So... That's our text. First Kings. Oh, sorry, not First Kings. We'll get to First Kings. Deuteronomy 24. Verse 19. Can you please stand with me as we read this? God's giving them instructions on when they receive the bounty, when they receive the harvest, how they deal with it. Okay, verse 19 of chapter 24. When you reap your harvest in your field and you forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back and get it. It shall be for the sojourner, for the fatherless, and the widow. And the Lord your God that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over them again. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not strip it afterward. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do this. God's word. Pray with me. Thank you, Father, for your word. 
Thank you, Father, for the beauty of it. Thank you, Father, for your abundance and your love. Thank you, Father, for your covenant with us. Thank you, Father, for your provision for us. Teach us as your people here now in this land of abundance how to honor you, that you may bless the work of our hands. In the name of Jesus, amen. You can have a seat. So the idea was, you guys know what it's like. You've been there in slavery. By the next generation, you're going to completely forget what that was like. And you're going to have abundance. And when you do, what's going to happen? Jonathan Wesley, the great revival speaker, once said, had this major problem when the revival broke loose. And he said there was all these people who were alcoholics. And he said, and then they got radically saved, and they stopped drinking, and they started working. And once they started working, they had money. And as soon as they had money, they started thinking it was theirs, and they stopped depending on God. And things didn't work out anymore. This is exactly what it is that the Lord is trying to defend against. In the wilderness, you're crying out, depending on me, but then you come into the land of abundance, and he's like, you got to remember. you got to remember where you came from, and and you got to submit to me. And you got to allow me to continue to bless you. But in order for me to continue to bless you, you have to go by the rules of the family. If you want dad to be able to continue to bless and to provide, then you have to submit to dad's way of living, right? And so what this is, is he says, when you get your abundance, leave stuff laying around. Like, leave, leave money laying around. <laughs> you know? Like, when you leave your tip for that waitress, abundant tip. Don't nickel and dime it. Don't think through weight. You know, it's 50 cents. It's an extra buck. It's five extra bucks. It's not going to, like, that's not the deal, right? That's not what it's about. Bless. Bless. Leave abundance. I want to bless you in the work of your hands. Leave the edges of the field for people to come and reap. And remember who it's for. It's for the fatherless. Remember what it felt like to be an orphan in Egypt? It's for the sojourner. Remember what it felt like to wander in the wilderness? It's for the widow. Remember what it felt like to be abandoned, to be alone and unloved. Remember all of that feeling that you had? Bless. Let those people receive the blessing. I blessed you. I want to bless them. You want to be with me when I bless you? Let it go. Bless abundantly and you will be blessed. There's this one guy who took that seriously and literally. Anybody remember who that was? Left stuff laying in the field. Boaz. Good move, Boaz. You got yourself a really good wife out of it. It's amazing. Boaz leaves stuff laying around. Ruth comes by. It's amazing. When God blesses us, the way the kingdom mentality works, it doesn't mean, all right, I'm going to give God 10 bucks and he's going to give me 100 bucks. That's not the way it works. What it do- this is the way it does work. I want abundant life. I stay in the flow of God's abundant life. And the way dad knows that I need to be blessed is way better than the way that I think I want to be blessed. And so I leave a couple sheaves laying around and some grapes laying around, and God gives me a wife. <laughs> you know, that's how the abundant life works. That we flow with God and God provides for us in ways we weren't even expecting. That we couldn't even imagine. But when I want to hold on, and when I think it's mine, I stop the flow. And when I stop the flow, I might still have wealth in my bank account, but I will not have the abundance of life that comes with being present with the Lord. Here's the kingdom mentality. Proverbs 11, 24 to 25, it says, One gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. Notice that? What do I want? If I withhold, I want. I still have that feeling of want. For whoever brings blessing will be enriched. And one who waters will himself be watered. Jesus tells us many, many times, 
about this. You know, Jesus talks about the kingdom of God more than any other thing in the scriptures. And inside the kingdom of God, he talks about one thing, by far more than anything else, and that's money. He talks about it all the time, how we handle it. Luke 6, 38, middle of the sermon. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. As you sow, you also shall reap. This is the mentality of the kingdom of God. This is the mentality of the kingdom of God. I have a dad of abundance who calls me to a life of abundance. And when I live abundantly generous, something spectacular happens in my life. When I live feeling the tension of having having to hold it and figure it all out, that is not the life of abundance. That is not the life of freedom. That is the life of fear and a life of control where I'm trying to play my own dad, where I'm trying to play my own father, where I'm trying to play my own God. I don't want to be in that situation. Now listen, when it comes to the difference between the sin and the iniquity, this is where we get into what this series is actually about, okay? This is where we can, t- we can identify the, the sins. The sins are, when I see that person in need, will I give them money, okay? Now there's that tension in me. That's the daily struggle of sin of like, okay, there's this person in need. Will I be generous? Can I trust God with that? That's the basic level around greed. Here's the deeper level around greed. This is how it affects us when it goes septic in our system. You know what it means for something to go septic? That's what they told me at the hospital a few weeks ago when all my white blood cells were gone. They said, you got to get in here and get in isolation right away or else you're going to go septic from one of your kid's colds. What that means is a little common cold that shouldn't be a big deal affects every part of my system and I have nothing to fight it off anymore and just a little cold can take you out. When things go septic, we can't fight them anymore. What happens in cultural iniquity is when we go from a sin level thing that we're fighting day in and day out to getting to a place where it goes septic and we don't even see where it is and it's affecting us on every level. Where we begin to think differently where it changes our very foundation. This is how greed affects us on a septic level. First, I want to remind you of what we said last, year, last week when we were trying to uh, explain the idea of iniquity versus sin. We used the analogy of time. And what we said was, we know that the virtue, the kingdom virtue around time is patience. The problem is when we start to think that the kingdom virtue around time is efficiency. Efficiency is good, it's wisdom, we have to make the most of the time. But if efficiency ever becomes the primary virtue, then it will negate patience. Patience requires faith for me to trust that time is in his hands, so I have to let go. Efficiency doesn't necessarily require that. Efficiency requires wisdom. Wisdom is good. Faith is better. Because all wisdom is found in the fear of the Lord. Faith is all about that fear of the Lord. First, I trust him. Then, with any brains that he gives me, I figure out, to do with what, I, I figure out what to do with what he's given me. Learning how to be faithful in wisdom is important. Very, very important. But it is not anywhere near as important to realize that my wisdom is never enough. And I have to just listen and trust and obey like a child before my father. Every time when sin goes to iniquity, it has to do with that moment when we stop being the child who's trusting dad and just obeying him simply, and it gets to the place where I'm the one who has to be wise and figure out how to do this right. And I'm working hard to be right instead of simply listening and trusting dad. When that happens, Iniquity takes over. This is the way it works with finances. What is the kingdom virtue around finances? Generosity. Which, by the way, is rooted in gratitude. Generosity. When I say thank you and bless. That's the kingdom virtue from cover to cover all across the pages of Scripture. If you can read the Bible and not see generosity, then you have not yet read the Bible. 
You know, it is like who God is. It is core. Anytime that there's a kingdom virtue, it's based first in love. God is wise, but deeper than wisdom is his love. And so the abundance of generosity is the kingdom virtue. Now there is another virtue about wisdom regarding resources. That's an important one. What does it mean for us to be wise? When we say that we are wise with resources, what's the word that we use? I heard it. Stewardship. What does it mean to be a good steward of your time? To be efficient with your time. What does it mean to be a good steward of your money? To be wise with it. Does God ask us to be wise with our resources? Yes, clearly, when that becomes the primary virtue in my life, it will affect my ability to be generous and to be grateful. Because my focus will not first be on the abundance of God and Him calling me to things that are way beyond my capacity to be able to give to. Instead, it will be limited to that which He's already given me and that which I can understand, and I will manage that in order to do things that are the basic principles of God. So this is the way it works. God's given me $100,000. That's not Tim talking. This is an example. Okay, If, if God's given me $100,000, but then he calls me with that money to care for my family, to, t- to, to give generously, and and to provide for the basic needs, and to do this, and to do this, and to do this, and then this situation, and I'm, I'm trying to manage that, and form the budget, and be as wise as I can to figure out how to do all of that, and then Father God comes along and says, I want you to give $50,000 to this thing. Stewardship. Or generosity. Am I an adult who's wise in how I handle my money first? Or am I a child who's trusting my father? There is an absolutely spectacular story in Scripture. One of my favorite stories in all of Scripture that illustrates this in just perfect fashion. Every time that Jesus wants to teach us, not every time, most of the times when Jesus wants to teach us so precisely the virtue of the kingdom value of generosity. What kind of person does he usually go to to teach us that? What's that? Yeah, even a specific kind of poor person. A widow. Which story of the widow? Because there's a bunch of them. There's a whole bunch of them, right? And who are we supposed to give our money to? The sojourner, the fatherless, and the last one, the widow. And every time he wants to teach us about how to use the money, he gives it to the widow to put on a clinic for us to show us how it's actually done. Because they know how to do it. They know how to do it. So here we go. First Kings. Oh, by the way, um, I preached a message on this uh, uh, almost nine years ago now at a rally day here um, before I came to pastor here. Um, and if you were to ask me, or, um, what do I think is a leading passage for Parker Ford Church, a passage that I think this identifies us and what God wants to speak to us, there's two passages I would pick. One would be in the New Testament, and it would be John 6, and I preached on it a couple months ago in the I Am series on the Bread of Life. Secondarily, the other one would be from the Old Testament, and it would be this one right here, okay? First Kings, chapter 8, and the reason I say that is because I think that Parker Ford has embodied this throughout its history. This speaks to who Parker Ford has been throughout its history. It's an awesome, awesome picture of it. All right, so 1 Kings, and, and we're going to be in chapter 17 and, and, and take this apart a little bit. Um, let me give you the story of what's happening right now. This is so amazing what's happening. In the, the kingdom of God is divided, okay? The kingdom of God is divided. There's the north which is called Israel, and there's the south, which is called Judah. In Judah, there is a wild revival that has just taken place in Judah. 
crazy revival under a man named King Asa. It is one of the most amazing revivals, and it is one of, like, no one ever talks about King Asa, and yet this is, like, the mind-boggling, spectacular revival in Israelite history after David. It is absolutely amazing. Go back and read it, and they whole, it says that, that the whole nation wholeheartedly swore to serve God with every ounce of their heart and gave themselves together to God. Absolutely spectacular. That was the revival that was taking place in the south in Judah. Meanwhile, in the north, there was a guy who had been king. His name was Omri, and he was a horrible, horrible king. Wasn't nearly as bad as his son who takes over right now. You may have heard of the guy. He's not a great guy. His name's Ahab. But it's not Ahab whose name that we hear the most. It's his wonderful wife who we know about. See, Ahab, there's this thing, one of the other principles that God gave about abundance and about provision is he said, when you come into that land of milk and honey, there's a whole bunch of people there who who they don't worship me and they don't realize that the abundance comes from me, but we're going to show them that the abundance comes from me. So when you go into that land, the land of the Canaanites, I don't want you to intermarry with them. I don't want you to covenant with them because if you covenant with them, then you're going to end up worshiping their gods and their gods are all false and the reason I'm bringing you here is not only to provide for you but to reveal my glory to the world around so I can be a blessing to all of those nations so don't marry with them well Ahab decides to go to a princess from one of those Canaanite nations called Sidon and to take her as his wife it was a political move Great move because if you if you want to have allegiance and peace with the people next to you it gives you abundance you want abundance well, he's managing his resources and managing the kingdom. And instead of listening to the rules of his father, what he does is he goes and he's wise. He's smart. And he goes and marries this princess of a neighboring country in Sidon. Wonderful woman by the name of Jezebel. So he goes and marries Jezebel. Doesn't take long until there's a temple in Samaria. There's not supposed to be any sort of temple in Samaria, let alone one to Baal. Baal is the god of fertility. That's not about human reproduction. That's about the land being fertile. It's about the production of crops. It's about wealth. It's about provision. And what Ahab does is religious syncretism starts to go deep into the Israelite culture, which means, yeah, we still worship Yahweh, but all the mentality of our world has crept into the way we worship. And we don't even realize it, but we're worshiping all of these different things in all these different ways, and we're not even close to being lined up. And we still might name the name of Yahweh as the God of Israel, but by and large at this point, that's just a name that denotes our history. That doesn't have anything to do with our true identity of who we are and who we lean into. And so they set up the Asherah poles and they set up the the temples of Baal and they start worshiping. And of course, what it is that Baal's supposed to provide for them is abundance. So he makes a political agreement by marrying Jezebel and then he starts to worship a a false god in order to receive the abundance. And that's the whole That's the whole gig there. Of course, any time that God loves his people and they start getting into a system of sin, what does he do? He confronts them. He disciplines them. He convicts them. And he brings guilt. And he tries to show them where they're wrong because he wants to restore them to the abundant life. You think Ahab and Jezebel were happy people because they had wealth? They were miserable, miserable, controlling, stressed out, greedy, frustrating, angry, murdering people who totally hated those around them, and they destroyed the land. But they thought they were wise in gaining more equity. Well, what happens is, is God, as he does, he sends someone to confront them. Every time that God sends someone to bring confrontation, this is what we call the prophetic voice of God. When God breaks through and he comes into our situation and he speaks his truth into our lives. That's called the prophetic voice of God. 
And he uses all sorts of means by which to bring the prophetic voice. In this moment, the way he brings that prophetic voice happens to be through a prophet. And not just any prophet, Elijah. And when Ahab and Jezebel are present, God's bringing Elijah. Okay? This is fire from heaven, Elijah. And Elijah walks up into Ahab's place and he stands in front of this king who has already been dethroned because he's given his authority to other gods and to his wife and he no longer stands in the authority that was given to him by Yahweh. And Elijah walks up into his throne room and he stands in front of him and he says, you have worshipped a false god and you have intermarried and you have stepped out of God's design for this country and for your life. And because of that, there will be a drought which will lead to a famine and that fertility will not take place. Then Elijah runs. (laughs) Because Elijah knows this, that when people are living in deep iniquity and they don't want to hear what it is that God's doing, that if you come and you speak truth, by and large, that doesn't go well. And so he turns and runs, and, and that's been proven true over and over again. The uh, prophets were killed all through the Old Testament to the point where Jesus walks in and he says, you killed all your fathers, the prophets, and you're going to kill me. Because Jesus had to speak the exact same thing, the message of the kingdom of God to a, of abundance to these Pharisees and Sadducees who didn't care to release and to live in full faith and abundance, trusting it would always be provided. But instead, they tried to manage and control. And they killed him. Elijah runs, but this is where the story gets awesome. <laughs> he runs and God says, for a while he's down, you know, in the, in the wilderness, of course. Where you go after that? You go to the wilderness. And then after the wilderness, he says, I'm going to send you somewhere else, Elijah. Out of all the places in the world, where do you think he sends him? Yeah, before the widow. But what country does the widow live in? Sidon. Jezebel's country. And go back to Sidon. Go back to, go back to Baal's homeland. Go back to where it all broke down. Go back to where they thought they should form an alliance from because that's where the God of Baal is and that's where these people are politically strong and all that. Go there. Except don't go to the king's house and marry a princess. Go to the widow who's in desperate need because Baal doesn't know how to provide. Go to her, and I'm going to feed you through her. (laughs) Listen to it. It's awesome. Wait for it. Verse 8, And the word of the Lord came to him, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there, live there, set up shop there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. (laughs) If you think that God doesn't have a sense of humor, this is where we need to read a little deeper. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, as the Lord, see that word Lord? See that? Is that all capital letters or is it lowercase letters? All capital letters. Do you know what that means? That means it's the proper name for the God of Israel. That means she said, as surely as Yahweh, your God lives. She didn't just say as sure as God. She named the God of Israel. And she said, as surely as Yahweh your God lives. I have nothing baked and only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I am gathering for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. Now listen, remember we said last week, idolatry, it doesn't just hurt us. Cultural iniquities don't just hurt us. They always go after the next generation. They try to kill our kids. You remember what God said about when when he brought them into the promised land and he tore down the walls of Jericho? Remember he said, don't rebuild this. Anyone who rebuilds this will do it at the expense of what? Their firstborn son. You know who rebuilt the walls of Jericho? Ahab. You know what happened? He lost his firstborn son. Then he decided to build the gates and he lost his youngest son. 
So now, and that's in the chapter right before here is where it tells us that. Now he goes back to Sidon, to the Zarephath widow whose son is about to die. Elijah said to her, here's the most important three words. There's five words that we need to hear if we hear anything today. Here's the most important three words. He said to her, do not fear. Not fear. Ever. Ever. Do not ever, 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 never, ever, for any reason ever, fear anything at all but God. There is nothing to fear but God. When we fear and when we trust God, nothing at all can stand in our way. We are children of the designer of the universe, of the almighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. He has us. Do not fear. Go. And do as you have said. Here's the other two words that are super important. I said there's five. Here's the other. But first. Do not fear. Go ahead. Your wildest dreams, all of that. Chase it. Be wise. Be a good steward and all of that. But first. But first. Make me a little cake of it and bring it to me. And afterward... After you do that, after you give what you're supposed to to the Lord, after that, make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. Once he sends rain upon the earth, you're back to a land of abundance and then you better think about how I'm going to do all that because I have to honor him and glorify him. But in the meantime, when you're in the wilderness, when you're in the desert, when you're in the drought and it seems like there's no way, don't fear. First do what I ask you to do and then I'll always provide for you. And she went and did as Elijah said. Notice that the king of Israel is not listening to the prophetic voice of God, but a Zarephath widow in Sidon is listening to the voice of God. My guess is, is because the Zarephath widow has lived inside on under Jezebel and her family and under the God of Baal for long enough to know that all the promises are empty. And so she's probably refreshed by hearing the voice of a real God. But those who had lived in the palaces with the abundance thought that they could play games. She and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that was spoken by Elijah. Amen? That is a good story. You know, Parker Ford Church, there was a time where God called this church to build a building, and we didn't have the money for it or a reason to build it, (laughs) other than the fact that God said to do it. And there was a number of you who were there and decided to, to sell a bunch of things that you have and to give of your, your retirement funds and to do all sorts of things in order to build that building. And then, boom, God pays it off and God blesses the church and all sorts of things happen. That was a Zarephath widow moment. It's an awesome one. Praise God for that. I can go back and tell story after story. I'm just, just going to tell that one. I Actually, it would be much better if I turned the mic over and let you guys tell the stories. You know, because you know them better than I do. A lot of stories about the moments where we've stepped out and where we've listened to God first instead of looking at our circumstances first. Greed is based in selfishness and in fear. But generosity is based in gratitude. You know, D.K. Chesterton, the the great author, he said once, the most horrible moment for an atheist is when they have this overwhelming sense of gratitude and they have no one to thank. The core for us, the core is we're the kids. That means that we walk in, in an attitude of gratitude, that whole thing, you know. That's what we do. 
Always thankful, thankful in all circumstances. And the more that we are thankful, the more we're recognizing that he's providing. And the more we're in that place, the more we're free. We're not fearing. We're, he's got me, and I can, I can flow with him. And when I walk into a situation and God's heart is for that person and God's command is this way, then I'm like not really watching all that tightly what's going on here. I'm just doing this because God's doing that, and it's flowing, and it's flowing, and it's flowing. That's what it's like to live the grateful life and the generous life. Now, if I want to protect, if I want to take my daily vitamins and I want to exercise and I want to do the stuff that I can to, to guard against greed, here's the daily vitamin, okay? Here's the exercise. Here's the eating healthy. Thank God for everything. That's the daily practice. Thank him, thank him, praise him, thank him, thank him, thank him, praise him. Just constantly. We do this all the time in our home. It's a regular practice we try to set up with kids. What are we thankful for? What are we thankful for? Let's name it. Let's just name it. Keep naming it. And we just praise God and say thank you. All your requests, bring them to God, but bring them with thanksgiving. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Thank him. If right now you don't have a whole lot of joy in your life, chances are you're not very thankful right now in your life. If right now you're angry about this or you're frustrated about this or you're upset about that, get thankful. Remember, look around and see. Take your daily vitamins. Go for an exercise. Check out what God's doing. And instead of seeing what you don't see and you're frustrated about that, look to what God is doing and identify that and start thanking him. That's the daily, daily routine of a Christian, being thankful. However, that deals with the sin level. The iniquity level, that affects us on a much deeper level. And that's when I get to the place in my mindset where when I look at my resources, whether that's my time, whether that's my talents, whether that's my, my, uh, my uh, finances, whatever it is, if I start to think too much about managing those and I think that the virtue is stewardship, and I start to realize this has permeated the way I think on a much deeper level. And I am not flowing with God. Then I need a deeper cure than just working hard at my disciplines. That's when we come to the last word in our series. God gives us conviction and guilt so that we can see what's wrong. But God gives us confession and communion so that he can heal what's wrong. When I think that I can just overcome greed, then I am proud and I am blind. Greed has pervaded our culture. We are the promised land in the sense that we are the land of abundance. <laughs> and yet the way that we have handled that as a nation by and large at this moment in our life and the way we've handled that as a church by and large in this moment is we need to turn and we need to remember and we need to say, God, we need a major adjustment in the way we see things. Today is Pentecost Sunday. You know that? It's Pentecost Sunday, birth of the church. This is where we end, talking about this right here, okay? The birth of the church. At the birth of the church, there was an amazing thing that happened. People remembered who their God was and they remembered how amazing he was. We've got to look at it. You can't get through Pentecost Sunday without looking at Acts 2 and just naming what it looked like. After the fire had come and after Peter had preached and after 3,000 were given to him, then there's a description of what it looked like to be the believers. This is the picture for us. This is the blueprint of the church right here. Acts 2, 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together. And they had all things in common. Now listen, verse 45. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all at, as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple courts together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with Glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. We want to see salvation happen every day up in here? I do. I want to see people get saved. 
I want to see people come to Christ to give their life to the Lord. We want to see the abundance of God healing, of God moving, of God doing powerful things. We want to have our mind blown by the presence of God. Then let it flow. Let it flow. Let it flow. Everything he receives, we give. He didn't give it to be mine. He gave it so that I can bless. It is not mine. I live in the household of the family of faith. And there is a dad who's the provider and a dad who's the giver. And what he wants to do is allow me to be a part of the blessing. All that he has given me is to bless any time, any time that I decide it is my job to first manage before obey. I start to lose the joy. It is much, much more blessed to give than it is to receive. Let's pray. Jesus, I know that um, the God of, you as God of the Old Testament, um, you are also God of the New Testament. And uh, as you spoke over and over again in the kingdom about how we are to use our resources, there's this moment that we remember, and it should bring a level of fear into our lives, and it certainly does into mine. And it's when they were selling all those possessions and giving it to the poor, and then Ananias and Sapphira came, and they gave what they said they had sold and given to you, and they were struck dead in the New Testament. And we know that this is a very, very serious deal, that you want the abundant life for your church, that you want us to flow, and that right now in America, you want your church to put on an absolute clinic. You want us to be like the widow who puts on a clinic to a nation around about how to steward (laughs) by faith in trusting you, being generous, overwhelmingly generous out of gratitude. God, I I just ask that for each one of us where we have seen and known that our minds have a hard time with that, that you would bring us to the table today, that you would remind us that there is a body broken and there is blood shed for us, and that this transformation of our minds does not happen by our power, but today we confess to you. We confess to you, God, that we do not look like Acts 2, That's not where we are yet. We have a long way to go. We do not look like the Zarephath widow who gave her last food. We do not look yet like the the widows, the widow in the New Testament who you talked about who gave her last two. We're not there yet. So we come to the table and say, God, heal us in the name of Jesus.